Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In the last episode we saw the Israelites take possession of the land east of the Jordan. You may recall that Gad and Reuben decide to claim the land east of the Jordan because they saw it was good for rearing cattle. But Moses was angry because he thought Reuben and Gad abandoned their desire for the promised land. Moses was concerned that Gad and Reuben might join forces with the Canaanites and fight against the rest of the Israelite tribes. However, his fears are calmed when Reuben and Gad agree to travel across the Jordan and join their brothers to fight against the Canaanites. The Israelites are now preparing to cross the Jordan River and conquer the land of Canaan. Yet this story won't be told until the book of Joshua. Numbers chapter 33 recounts Israel's journey through the wilderness. Let's pick up the narrative from verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. The Lord of Mimetic Rivalry once again calls the community to destroy their Canaanite rivals. These rivals currently live in Canaan and therefore become an obstacle to the people's desired object, the Promised Land. As the people imitate the Canaanites' desire for Canaan, a fierce rivalry will ensue, culminating in warfare. If the Israelites drive out the land's inhabitants, they will all enjoy their own inheritance in the promised land. But if Israel fail to displace their rivals, the Canaanites will become a perpetual nuisance to them as the people suffer mimetic violence. Such is the call of the primitive sacred. There can be no peace or reconciliation between rivals when mimetic rivalry drives our decision-making. There is only victory, or defeat. The call to slaughter the Canaanites includes their gods and items of veneration. In the ancient world, the gods would decide who emerged victorious in battle and who was defeated. We saw this dynamic in the Exodus narrative which was portrayed as a battle between the Lord and Pharaoh. Destroying or capturing a people's gods or sacred objects communicated a decisive and final victory over one's rivals. For this reason, the people are instructed to destroy the Canaanite sacred objects and places of worship. Through this act, the community simultaneously declare victory over their Canaanite rivals and confirm their communal identity as victors, empowered by the Lord of mimetic rivalry. As the people continue to prepare for the Canaanite contest, 
chapters 34 and 35 divide the land up among the Israelite tribes. Six cities are assigned to the Levites and appointed as asylum cities. Those who had killed someone could flee to these cities and seek asylum to avoid acts of blood vengeance. Let's continue reading from verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of asylum for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you an asylum from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be six cities of asylum. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of asylum. These six cities shall be for a refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, dropped it on him, so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of asylum to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the man shall flee at any time and go beyond the boundaries of his city of asylum to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of asylum, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of bloodshed. For he must remain in his city of asylum until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of asylum, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, 
for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it you shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of the which i dwell for i the lord dwell in the midst of the people of israel Our English translations of this passage often divide the person who kills another human into one of two categories. One, they are either someone who has done this without intent and there's an air of innocence and accident about it. Perhaps you might call it as manslaughter. And the second category, murder, is often accompanied by a certain intention, premeditation and malice. It's actually quite difficult to nail down and to communicate what is being described in these passages. The term translated as without intent is the Hebrew word shagagah. Earlier in the book of Numbers, this word was used to describe offences that may be expiated through animal sacrifice, as opposed to those that carry the death penalty. The same idea is conveyed in this passage. Those who commit Shegagar killings may survive the avenger of blood by fleeing to asylum cities, while non-Shegagar killers must be executed. Our text offers certain criteria to distinguish between these two types of killing, including ambush and the use of a weapon. With these criteria in mind, the term Shegagar could describe a lack of intent or premeditation. The word could even also refer to a secret killing to which no one can testify. In any case, Shegagar killers are protected from blood vengeance within the city of refuge, while non-Shegagar killers are not. By these means, the community minimise the chance of deadly blood feuds. In ancient Israel, a near kinsman would seek vengeance by attempting to slay the killer of their close relative. If this process was allowed to continue unfettered, it would lead to a mimetic crisis, an endless cycle of bloodshed that would ultimately destroy the entire community. Towards the end of our passage, this process is described with reference to purity language. We are told that illegitimate bloodshed defiles the land. Ancient people believed that if they defiled the land and the deity was exposed to this defilement, they might risk an outburst of divine violence. The threat of divine violence can only be removed by executing the murderer. No monetary bribe or compensation should be accepted for murder because the only means of effectively purging mimetic rivalry between the murderer and the avenger of blood is through execution as the community purge mimetic rivalry from their midst. Asylum cities also assist in this process by protecting accused killers until their fate can be decided by the community. If the community label the accused killer a murderer, they are handed over to the avenger of blood and executed. But rather than fueling the cycle of blood vengeance, this execution employs the scapegoat mechanism to put an end to the cycle of violence. Most importantly, the whole community decides the accused killer's fate. Initially, at least two or three witnesses are required to level accusations at the killer, 
for the community to imitate. By handing the murderer over to the Avenger of Blood, the community vent their collective rivalries and experience a sense of peace and order, which the community interpret as a divine approval for their actions. With this peace and order comes a sense of closure and insurance that the evil has been purged from the community. This experience ensures that the cycle of blood vengeance is halted, at least until another unauthorized killing is committed. However, if the community do not imitate these accusations, the killing is declared shegaga, and the offender is protected from the avenger of blood. Although the passage offers some criteria for judgment, the accused killer's fate is ultimately determined by whether or not the mob will imitate the original witnesses' accusations. Later Jewish tradition seems to acknowledge this very weakness. Maimonides writes that a person should not be executed on the unanimous condemnation of the mob alone. In such cases, more evidence is required to convict the accused party. This statement shows an awareness of the scapegoat mechanism's potential to convict innocent people if mimesis is strong enough. According to mimetic theory, the mob will search for a victim to blame in times of a mimetic crisis. In such situations, the community are primed to arbitrarily blame anyone for the crisis they face, regardless of their guilt or innocence. Mammonides seems somewhat aware of this process and cautions against accepting unanimous verdicts from the mob in capital cases. In many ways, our modern legal system, which relies upon juries to determine the accused's guilt of innocence, suffers from many of the same limitations. Prosecutors know that they are more likely to achieve a guilty verdict if the jury feel disgust and rage in response to the crime being considered. Disgust triggers a rejection response from the members of the jury who then search for a scapegoat to blame for the crime. The jury then band together to scapegoat the defendant through a guilty verdict. Well aware of this process, prosecutors will attempt to elicit disgust and rage within the jury and attempt to paint the defendant as an immoral monster who must be expelled for the well-being of society. In high-profile cases, verdicts may have already been decided in the court of public opinion long before the offender takes the stand. According to mimetic theory, defendants are more likely to be found guilty within times of mimetic crisis, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic, because people are looking for scapegoats to blame for their plight. In contrast to the prosecution, defence lawyers will attempt to portray their clients in a positive light so that the jury can identify and empathise with them. Empathy jams a stick in the spokes of the scapegoat mechanism because it counteracts the monstrous portrait of the potential scapegoat. Unfortunately, modern juries are filled with modern people who bring with them their own history, traumas and emotions and are ready to be manipulated. The Book of Numbers concludes by revisiting the unique case of Zelophehad's daughters, whose lack of male siblings causes them to inherit the land in a patriarchal society. Certain leaders are concerned that if these women marry men outside their own clan, the inheritance will be transferred to another tribe. 
This continuity of inheritance is an important feature to Israel's economy. Land is passed between male heirs throughout generations to help prevent displacing people from their homes. With this in mind, the concerned leaders decide that Zelophehad's daughters must marry men from their own tribe so that after their death, the land is not transferred to another clan. Remember that this land is Zelophehad's legacy in Canaan. Although he never entered the promised land himself, his memory lives on through this parcel of land, so it remains the property of his descendants. In the end, the case of Zelophehad's daughters is really about Zelophehad himself and Israel's determination to remember and honour their ancestors who fled Egypt only to die in the wilderness. As we conclude our study of the book of Numbers, I'd like to reflect on the big takeaway for me. In Numbers, the people of Israel undergo a dangerous time of testing in the wilderness. The older generation perished during this time because they lost focus on their desired object and became distracted about all the different things around them. However, their children survived their wilderness wanderings by allowing mimetic rivalry to kindle their desire for the promised land. Because they were focused on this end goal, they didn't mind being thirsty, they didn't mind being hungry, sweaty, smelly. They just got on with it because they knew that at the end of the horizon there was something greater they were working towards. Something much more grand, much more powerful and valuable. Something that made their temporary period of suffering and discomfort worthwhile. In the end, this desire leads and motivates the Israelites to defeat their enemies in preparation for entering the land of Canaan. The more I meditate upon mimetic desire, the more I recognize its necessity to human flourishing. Amongst other things, mimetic desire is the driving force behind human growth, development and creation. For this reason, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge our mimetic impulses and search for positive expressions and models for us to follow. As we imitate these models, we adopt their noble desires as our own. Desires for virtues such as truth and justice. A shared focus on these desired objects can inspire us to work together to achieve our goals, Just as Israel united around their common desire for the promised land, so too a common desire for a noble purpose can unite us and draw us together. Through this sort of positive mimesis, we band together and work towards creating our own promised land. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.